right. Taryn and I are back together having some discussions so that we can shift the narrative around everything autism. How are you doing today, Taryn? I'm holding it together. Pretty, a little bit tired, but it is what it mm -hmm. is. It's towards the end of the week. Yeah, so we're all kind of... it's, it's been busy too, so. Yeah, it's one of the one of the pros and cons, I guess, are the uh, about having a really productive week, and then when you get towards the end, then you start getting a little tickered out because you've had a productive week. But um, so it's a good thing. It's just uh... it's weird because I don't work like a typical nine to five because I do. I'm essentially a freelancer. I do this podcast. Mm -hmm. I do some freelancing. Um, my my schedule is weird. I do a lot of night. I put work a lot of late nights. Uh, I work a lot of weekends. My, my energy levels still sort of follow the Monday through Friday I had while I was still in school, while I was still in college, where, mon where like, Monday through, like, Wednesday I feel okay. Everyone hates Mondays. I still hate Mondays. I don't even have a reason to hate Mondays, but I do. And then by the end, by Thursday and Friday, I'm tired, and I'm sort of take, I sort of chill on the weekends unless I have something that's urgently due. So it's weird. It's like that, that never quite leaves you. Ah, I never liked Mondays. No I'll one to tell does. my Monday story. My Monday story another day. Uh, so today I had a random, random um, idea popped in my head. Uh, nothing sort of sparked the interest for me to talk about it. It was probably something I wanted to talk about years ago, but now I have the opportunity to have a great dialogue with Torin. And it is in regards to the debate around early intervention. And just to give a little bit of history, uh, those of you who um, have are listening for the first time or have been listening before, my background is speech therapy. And then I also worked as an early interventionist, which kind of speech therapy, we're kind of already doing that a little bit, but not with the title, but I was specifically an early interventionist um, for kiddos, um, specific in the area of um, kiddos diagnosed or classified with autism. And uh, over the years, I've seen changes in services, um, not, not really good changes, um, but I've also seen some debate around, should we do early intervention or should we not do early intervention? And what should early intervention look like? And what should early intervention focus on? So... I've never really had this discussion with anyone, so this is new for me. Uh, it's always been in my head. Torin, what are your what are your initial thoughts around when you hear early intervention? Um, I get annoyed, and here's the reason I get annoyed because so much of the and I know understand we're talking about early intervention, but so much of the narrative is based around early intervention. If you gotta get to them early, otherwise they won't be able to live a full. Uh, fulfilling life. You gotta get to them mm -hmm. early, otherwise they'll never talk to them, never tie their shoes, yada, yada, yada. And mm -hmm. almost no attention is given to pretty much autistic people after the age of 16. Mm -hmm. Like, after about mm, 16 to 18, they're like, well, if you still don't act neurotypical, I guess you're screwed. Nothing mm -hmm. we can do. Like, unless, yeah. of course, your support needs are so high that you absolutely cannot function on your own, then the mm -hmm. state after a lot of arm twisting and more paperwork than signing up for the CIA will finally give you a little bit of help. But they'll steal mm -hmm. all your autonomy while you're at it. They own you. They decide what you do. They decide how much money you have. They control you. And so I get annoyed by early intervention, not because I'm against early intervention. I'm not. But because it takes away from everything else pretty much. 
Because, yeah. and I understand, because people want to believe, like, I really am loath to make this analogy, and I'm not comparing the two. However, it, it's apt in this situation. It's similar to cancer, when they say you want to get it early. You want to get it mm -hmm. early. That's how they talk about autism. They talk about it like it's cancer. You want to get it early. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, while that's important, while that is important because the earlier a child is equipped with the proper tools and the proper therapies to help them navigate their autistic life, the better and the less trauma they're likely to endure trying to navigate a neurotypical world. It's also not the full story. And oftentimes yes. early intervention, as I'm sure we're talking about, isn't the right sorts of therapies and tools. Yes. And I just, ah, oh, that was just beautiful, Torin. Uh, you know, if you guys haven't heard me say this before, I just, I love it when um, Torin and I have discussions because there's so much great organic little bits of just wonderful, um, wonderful ideas and wonderful things to say. What I, what I find interesting, Torin, is when you were saying initially early intervention and, um, you know, focus on it and to, to hurry up and get it and, and get it done and get it done to get the neurotypical. It's interesting because I was perceiving that from a different lens. And then you came in full circle. We were really looking at it from the same lens, just from two different perspective, perspectives, right? So when, when I think of early intervention and as an early interventionist and someone who believes that, you know, with anything, whether it's, you know, setting boundaries with your child um, as a parent, right? Uh, the earlier you start setting those boundaries, the easier it is when they're teenagers. Uh, the same with, um, you know, kiddos, either whether it's a speech impairment or a learning disability or autism or whatever. Um, the sooner we know, the sooner we can support their needs. Uh, but what I think I have realized over the years is early intervention is not centered on child it's not child centered on building the child's skills it's all centered around getting them ready for school getting them ready for school getting them ready for school or getting reassessed or reevaluated to not need any services or any support and and i'm saying this just because on the things have changed in the early intervention um world in terms of when I was a speech therapist, literally, if you were in a hospital and gave birth to a child that was like three weeks early, you were like immediately assigned someone to track and make sure that your child was meeting developmental, you know, needs, fine motor, holding, the, you know, all those things that are important, feeding, weight, you know, all those things. And um, then, then if they had a diagnosis or anything that was sort of um, uh, going to just be um, with them throughout their lives then they would transition into the early intervention school setting, right? Ages three to five, you could stay until you were six with the goal of getting them ready for kindergarten, right? Not let's build communication skills in this child, not let's help this child um, uh, uh, develop, um, you know, a method of being able to be independent with, um, you know, putting their clothes on. And it was all about, you know, writing their name, writing their name. So, and this is, of course, the education system that's providing it. So I kind of understand, but even outside and before that, early intervention is to get them ready for school. And uh, now, 
because of lack of funding, uh, you can rarely get your child to get early intervention services because it was free from birth to three. And of course, then they go into the school system or they, you now have to have a child that is severe, um, high needs, like, you know, really, oh, really. They, they don't say high needs. They say low functioning. Or no, I know. I know. Exactly. Like, they're exactly. not that courteous. Exactly. So then you have a child that may have been on the verge, right, of developing um, communication, but because speech therapy is not provided because they're not severe enough, you know, they're not banging their head on a wall and doing all these stereotypical things that people think about, they don't get services, right? So then there's a missed opportunity to develop communication early intervention, right, to, to sort of provide that. And so now it's different because of funding and 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 just different all around, just like everything else. But the other thing that I, I wanted to bring up in regards to why I think it kind of, this topic pulled out of my head, a file that was buried. I remember reading an article um, written, um, or a post written by an autistic individual in one of the groups, and they were anti-early intervention. And then a lot of people were anti-early intervention. And then I started to like really have to think about why is that? Like, oh my gosh, like, like, why do we not want early intervention? Like, why do we not want? And then the perspective was that it was the goal of changing and making the child, I thought I had that turned off, making the child, um, you know, appear normal, which is the terminology they used to use, but that was what they said in the post. And so you know, I'd never really thought about that. Is that is the goal, though? Like legit, yes, that yes. that is the goal, yes. unfortunately, of most yes. early intervention. Yes, to get them ready for school, to look like all the other kids, to be able to fit into a inclusive setting, and all that other stuff. Um, but I couldn't. You know, there's a lot of things that I've changed my viewpoints on um, over my lifetime, right? But specifically, maybe the last ten years. Um, the more I know, the more I learn, and I couldn't shift on that in terms of agreeing with early intervention is bad. Um, so because I'm like, Ugh. and maybe it's like everything else, right? If, if it's done right to specifically support the child's needs to support their individual needs and not make them into something else, then I don't know, Torin. Well, I've I, never had this I, conversation. I, I think anyone arguing that early intervention is bad is, I'm going to say something very controversial. I don't care what your background is, where, where where you're coming from. If you're an autistic individual, has had a bad experience with something like ABA. If you're arguing that early intervention as a whole is bad, you are a bad faith actor, in my opinion. You do not mm -hmm. know what you're talking about, and you probably should shut the F up because, I'm trying to keep this clean, because <laughs> people are going to listen to you and people are going to believe you. And they're not, and they're not going to get help for their kids of any sort. And that's actually what I wanted to say next. That dovetails perfectly. I want to expand the scope a little bit of the definition of "quote unquote" early intervention, because how mm -hmm. I see it, this is not the medical definition, but how I personally see it is: as soon as you get a diagnosis, whenever that is, that might not be when the child's two. I wasn't diagnosed; I was eight, for example. You very early on in the diagnosis process, apply for help. You go through the steps necessary where you, where you live, where your financial background is, what your child's needs are to get help. A lot of parents don't do that at all. 
they get the diagnosis and they do nothing unless the child is completely bouncing off the walls, melting down every day. They want to pretend like it's okay, they'll outgrow it. They'll do everything they can to avoid getting any sort of meaningful help unless it's a crisis. And when it's a crisis, they go straight to the most draconian version of ABA they can possibly find. So mm -hmm. I think anyone arguing that early intervention, intervening early in a child's diagnosis life is just bad faith. And that person, they, I'm not saying that they're doing it to hurt people. I'm saying they're idiots. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're idiots. They should know they're idiots and they should sit food. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those moments where I was like, well, you know, I, I need to listen to autistic individuals. And I was like, uh, so some autistic individuals literally don't know what they're talking no, 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 about. Exactly. Like they legitimately exactly. don't. Some autistic individuals Just with like huge followings don't know what they're talking about. They preach to yes. the choir. Like anything else, like anything else. There are people claiming to be nutritionists. There are life coaches who don't know anything about anything. And they're out there and making money and, and talking and people are following. So I have to remind myself that, you know, every community, every group of individuals, um, you know, we all have our, our, our range of folks. Right? Exactly. Uh, and it, it annoys yeah. me because, like you said, it's a wider issue where people in mm -hmm. general will be, some people might even have PhDs in a field. But then they talk about a whole bunch of other stuff their PhD wasn't in, and the stuff they say is stupid. I know. I and know. And autistic people, remember, we're like anyone else, and that includes both yep. the good and the bad. So there's a lot of <laughs> autistic individuals who say things, they have an area of expertise, and they say things in other areas where they kind of don't know what, what the hell they're talking about. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when you, when you said in terms of um, it's important for families to to intervene, right, to support their child's needs. Um, I think of all of the families that are in, you know, rural areas, not to mention countries that don't have these services. We're talking about the United States, right, and, and some other countries that may. But thinking of families in the United States of America specifically who do not um, have early intervention services, and I will quickly just do, um, well, I'll just mention that's one of the reasons I started my business because I kept meeting all of these families in very rural areas that wanted um, to do something, but there was nowhere for them to go. And the benefit of my parent coaching services is you can start before a diagnosis. You can start helping your child communicate before you have something written on paper. If you have, you know, um, someone guiding you through that, um, that is child-centered. <laughs> I'm really uh, good thing. This isn't this isn't visual because we're not we're not filming. We're we're only recording because I'm currently yes. like grinning ear to ear because I'm when you said rural, I really had to hold myself back. You you've heard some some, some of my redneck impressions. They're not good, <laughs> but I really had to hold myself back because I have some thoughts about um, certain people in rural areas and their very mm -hmm. backward thoughts on, well, a lot of things. I'm, I'm just being honest. But when yeah. it comes to autism, there's a big, um, which dovetails into this, there's a big uh, uh, misconception or idea going around in a lot of like rural, like evangelical communities that you can sort of pray mm -hmm. the autism away or yes. that it's the fault of the mother. Sort of like mm -hmm. pray the gay away. It's, a, it's along a similar vein. It's unwanted. Yes. And one of, uh, in the autism community, a lot of these bad takes are from mm -hmm. autistic people who grew up in devoutly religious households. Yes. Who their version of early intervention 
might have involved an exorcism. Yes, yes, and that has happened. And we have video of children um, having that very, very, very horrible experience um, in terms of people thinking that it's, there's some countries that actually think that it's, you know, the ancestors are angry, um, your family is cursed, um, because, you know, the reality is that when, when we grow up in an environment where we're closed off from everything and we are only getting access to the same message, the same message, the same message, then we, it's ingrained and, and it's hard to, to get people to see the other the other side, but I, I will, I will say that, um, you know, in regards to sort of, uh, the families, when I think about families I've worked with, not only in rural areas, but I've, you know, I've actually, which I, I, at one point I had to, to second guess and say, is this like a, some kind of like breach of like un-American or, or some kind of whatever I was working with a family that was in Benghazi, like, you know, like who would have thought I would be working with a, a dad who reached out to me um, and then I was working with another mom in Lebanon who her husband was a doctor and they lived in a very 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 small town where there was nothing you know he no school no therapy and and she had to do it all and and she learned how to do it virtually um, and and she did it very well but uh, you know I think that I guess like anything else you know my, in my ideal world Early intervention is important for anything, whether you, you know, find out you have cancer, you find out, you know, you're diabetic, the earlier you know something's going on um, in terms of something that needs support, well then, okay, it's great to know and great to get some intervention. Um, and, and I do feel bad when parents are pressured into, you have to do it in the next five years. You have to do it before they're five years old. I mean, I have parents all the time ask me, you know, about brain or plasticity. If I don't do it, they said, if I don't do it, if I don't do it by five, then they're not going to. And I'm like, mm, that's not true. I've been and, doing and, this and, and, and that, that upsets me where, and they're getting it from everyone. They're getting family, getting it from yes. pediatricians. They're getting it from teachers, from therapists. Mm -hmm. They're getting it from everybody where what they do is they not only tell them, oh, if you don't get it by the time they're five, uh, that they'll never do that. They also, they do on the other end where they feed you false hope, where they're telling you, well, if you get it early, there's hope that they mm -hmm. might be able to talk, walk. They might be a doctor or a lawyer. You might get the normal kid, the neurotypical they'll kid. They'll grow that, out of their diagnosis. Yeah, they'll, they'll grow, grow out of their diagnosis. You just mm -hmm. need to put them in, in incredibly like rigorous therapies. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need to do is talk about some of the traditional early intervention therapies and discuss those. Mm -hmm. And I think it's only right that we start with the gigantic elephant in the room, and that's ABA. Well, so, you know, I'm going to push back on that, Torin, because as someone who did early intervention, when early intervention was done correctly and funded, and in my opinion, done well because children, their needs were met, the traditional early intervention was speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. And those were the top three from the school perspective, right? That, that's what I got when I, when I was a kid. Yes. And there was adaptive PE as well. But those three therapies were, were the ones um, that were the focus. Even the early interventionist um, teacher who went into the homes from birth to three before they came into the classroom those were the people that went in with them and, and did activities with the kids, right? You know, to primitive reflexes, right? Somebody coming in working on that, OT working on 
fine motor and you know all these things um, for those preemie babies right not just our, our autistic kiddos so I think that when I think about early intervention was those three things primarily and then I remember I feel I feel like I feel like the old people when you're like well I remember way back when when I was young but I was in that segregated school environment where all of the special needs children went to one school and yes I understand inclusion but I also remember them getting all of their services every day and making wonderful progress from walking with their walker or they, know, they, they had a separate school and I was a kid it was just a broom closet oh yeah I'm so sorry Torin. <laughs> um so so when I think about that you know, initial going in to try to help kids to build some skill set, or most of it was actually um, helping the parents as well, especially when they were little, right? Teaching the parents how to help them develop, you know, all those little things and nuances motor-wise. And I think I lost my train of thought where I was going in terms of the traditional early intervention and, oh, how I'm old. (laughs) See, my brain's old. I just forgot it. How I was back in the day when I was a speech therapist, I remember when someone said the word ABA. I remember when someone grabbed onto it. I remember when I went to this first training and meeting. I remember when parents said, this is what we need in the schools. I remember when we had one clinic in Louisiana. I remember when there was a wait list for the one clinic. And now it is... This is what you do. This is all you do. That, you know, that's the first thing, the piece of paper that doctors give parents. And I always think, you know, my students who are, you know, adults and, and, and doing their thing and none of them got ABA. They had really good speech OT. So so thinking in terms of just for those those listeners out there who may not um, have been back in the day. Um, this ABA thing as, 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 as having it accessible was not part of the early intervention. It was not part of the early intervention. Um, it was very, very elite, um, therapy. And then it sort of like spread like wildfire and then it became a money-making business. And then, you know, now it's a controversy and, and, and that's another, you know, uh, podcast, but speech therapy for communication was always a priority because that's important. And, you know, any kind of motor skills for kids who need to navigate. And I know you have something to say, Torn, and I'm going to wrap it up and say, for all those speech therapists out there, um, like myself, one of the things that was very, very difficult for us to understand working in the school district is that speech therapists were paid the same salary as teachers. But speech therapists had the same credentials as occupational therapists and physical therapist who got paid much more. But what was interesting was when you sat in an IEP with parents and you asked them what they wanted for their child, whether their child was in a wheelchair, whether their child was with a walker, every parent, the first thing they said was, I want my child to be able to tell me what they want. Every parent was communication was a priority. And of course, you know, we used to always say, speech therapists should get paid just as much. Like, you know, everybody, you know, speech therapy is important. You know, we never did, but anyway, um, just a little... That, that's so uh, ironic because there's such a premium on speech, on teaching autistic mm-hmm. people how to... You said communicate, but it's how to talk. That's, that's not meant for words. They, they want their kids to, to talk. 
So it's such a premium. There's always been on having autistic kids talk, yet we undervalue the people whose job it is to help those kids vocalize. And we don't train speech therapists on understanding autism and how speech therapy for an autistic kiddo to develop communication is totally different than traditional speech therapy that was taught in in the college. And um, I wanted to say, but I, I forgot, um, in terms of you were saying that, you know, you got to do it by five years. I remember my language development class in Speech Path decades, decades, decades ago. And I remember them saying that you have to get it in by five. The brain plasticity stops at five. And then, of course, I remember learning that, no, it doesn't stop at five, right? As I, as I grew into my career and more information came out. But I remember them telling us that you have to do it by five or it's done. It's over. They, they, still, For they still say things like that. Mm-mm. People have traumatic brain injuries and the brain is still placid and yes. No, no, I agree with that. There's still a belief yeah. that if yeah. you don't get it in early. I know. And to, I and know. to a certain extent, like I said, there there is a measure of truth to that where if you know your child's autistic or clearly see if they're not meeting the normal uh, neurotypical milestones, mm-hmm. clearly something needs to be done. There needs to be some sort of intervention, the right sorts of intervention. And the longer you let that go, because you don't want to admit that your kid's struggling with things, you don't want to admit your kid might be atypical, the more mm-hmm. harm you're doing to the kid. So, yes. the, so there is a, I will say that there is a grain of truth to that. Yes, yes, yes. The earlier you intervene, the, the easier it is and the quicker, because little, little kids just make progress so quick. I mean, they're just like, blah, 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 just so quick. And which is one of the reasons why I push back on someone in... Um, uh, you know, the ABA field telling a parent that it takes two to three years. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't take two to three years for a three-year-old, two-year-old. Nope, it doesn't take that long. Um, however, when, when, you, when you intervene when they're younger, not only is it just, you know, more beneficial because it can lots of times just be much quicker, but it is much easier because when you wait, when you wait, just like if you wait to set boundaries at 15, it's harder to set those boundaries. So if you wait until your child goes to school and then the school flags your child, but you didn't, you know, you're in denial and I understand the denial process, but now your child has to work harder, right? To not only manage school, to learn communication, to, you know, all these things that we could have been working on before kindergarten. And so thinking in terms of when you wait it is so much harder for the child, but it is also harder for the therapist and the parents. You have to work harder and your child has to work triple, triple, triple harder because all of the other patterns in their brain um, have synapses have already, you know, if, if they're bringing your hand to get their cookies for four years and we keep doing that to get cookies, that's how you ask for cookies. I mean, that's how you ask for cookies and get cookies. Now, four years later, we want to say, no, we do this to ask for cookies. It's hard. It's really hard. It is. But one of the things I I want to circle back to is you mentioned that in your day, there was a lot of emphasis on speech, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. now, as you know, that's not the case. Now, people, especially in America, people are shunted through the ABA. Everyone, teachers, uh, therapists, pediatricians, they recommend ABA. 
Mm-hmm. And that there are multiple reasons for that. I, I, we could do a whole podcast on a lot of the shady stuff behind ABA. Long story short, in America, there's a lot of money behind it. There's a lot of mm-hmm. lobbying in Congress because ABA gets the most visceral results because mm-hmm. it, it's essentially conversion therapy to a large extent. At its core, that's what it is. I don't mean to be controversial yeah. this time, but at its core, it's essentially yeah. you're converting a child from autistic behaviors to neurotypical behaviors. As a result, mm-hmm. short term, you'll see things like increased speech mm-hmm. that's gotten through various methods that may or may not be sound, may or may not be healthy or productive. Um, potty training, uh, lack of more, either lack of stimming or more socially appropriate stimming, things like that. So even in New York, to the state I live in, in New York, there's a state senator whose his whole platform is getting more access to ABA and through lobbying as a state senator, he got our new governor. Cause we have a new governor who's looking to make a mark on the state because she just took over for various reasons. Point is she's looking to make a mark on the state. So she signed a big bill that uh, includes a lot of spending for people with special needs. But if you mm-hmm. read the bill, all the spending is going to things like ABA. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's going to ABA. So ABA, you can have ABA in schools now. They're allowing um, insurance companies, because most insurance companies don't carry ABA. And Medicaid, which is the, what I call the poor people insurance, is the insurance you get when you can't afford normal insurance or to pay for health care out of pocket because we don't have government-run health care like every other civilized country, and I'm going to keep saying that. Mm-hmm. It may, it, the bill also makes it so Medicaid in New York State covers ABA. So for a lot of mm-hmm. poor, the ramifications are for a lot of poor families who already don't have a lot of information because they're not going mm-hmm. to the best doctors. They're going to doctors. They're trying to see as many patients as possible because insurance doesn't pay them very much. They're not going to the best doctors. They don't have the most experience. A lot of them working two or three jobs. They don't have the patients. They don't have the money to hire a specialist like you, Stacy. And then their pediatrician quickly tells them, oh, you got to put them in ABA. And, mm-hmm. oh, look, Medicaid covers ABA. Medicaid's not mm-hmm. going to cover the, the, the speech therapy or the occupational yeah. therapy, the stuff that will, that will really help the kid. They're not going to cover that. They're going to mm-hmm. cover ABA. So you're going to put your kid in ABA. Not all of it's bad because a lot of places will say they're ABA to get government funding, but not mm-hmm. really be ABA. Yeah. But a lot of places are just legit ABA. The training for, yeah. for an ABA technician is an embarrassment. So that needs to be discussed because when we talk about early intervention, mm-hmm. I would almost venture to say that in the wrong ABA clinic, because it really varies, unfortunately, mm-hmm. yes. in the wrong ABA clinic, it can be almost as harmful as not getting intervention at all. And that's where a lot of, of autistic people who are against early intervention, that's where they're coming from. They were yes. put in those really bad ABA clinics that were yes. basically just conversion, where they did things like put spit hoods over your head when you didn't use words to ask for something. Yeah. That's a real yeah. thing, by the way. Some clinics do that. They use spit, like what they do to terrorists in Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. They do that to children in some yes. ABA clinics. They come out of those clinics traumatized, understandably, so then they're against all early intervention. Yes. So that you have to be very careful. And so this long-winded explanation is leading to a question, Stacy. What can parents? What are the signs parents should look for if they think their kids in? in therapy that's not only not helping but could be potentially harmful? What are some of the signs they should look for? Because a lot of parents don't know that. I love that you asked that question. I just had this discussion with one of my parents. Stacey just perked up so much, like she almost jumped out of her chair. 
so so I want I want I want to hold on to that question for a minute because my brain has to get out when you talked about insurance. Um, I have to share a story uh, and. I remember when one of my really good friends who works in human resources called me all excited a few years ago and said, Stacy, guess what? Just want to let you know that we are now providing and covering for our employees um, ABA therapy for their autistic kids. And I said, oh, and I said, well, are they, you know, at least they can get speech therapy and OT. No, 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 no. The trade-off was, you know, we're not covering speech and OT. I was like, and I felt so bad for her because she thought she was really, she was just so proud of herself because she clearly did not realize my relationship with that um, service. And so, uh, yeah, so that's the thing. It's like the insurance company is saying, okay, we're going to pay all of this hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of dollars for 40 hours every week. That means we can't cover speech and OT, which speech and OT are in my opinion, just yeah, but they take medical. longer, and they're not, and the results aren't as conclusive in the short term, and and there's just it, it's just it, it's more marketable ABA. It's so glossy and it fancy. It's like the it Maserati of autism therapies. But I will say, like anything else, if you have the right therapist, your child will make strides. And sometimes we just don't get the right therapist. So speaking of that, what do we know? How do we look for that? <laughs> Um, I had a mom, I'm going to start this off with a story, a new mom that I just started working with. And I think I shared this with you, Torin. I was so excited because she said that a speech therapist came into her home and her child would always hold on to this little plastic, uh, some kind of toy or something. And the speech therapist came in and took the little toy out of his hand and he starts crying and then he starts, you know, leading towards meltdown. And so the mom goes over to see what's going on. And she said, why did you take that out of his hand? And she said, he needs to learn to, 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 you have to set boundaries early. The mom told the speech therapist, you can pack your things. Don't come back. That like was the highlight of my week, right? Because when someone does something to your child that is just like two, three, one, four, your child should not be crying in therapy. I have been in sessions where I've heard children crying and I've said, what's going on, mom? Do you need to go? Oh, no, that's just the ABA therapist making him sit. I'm like, he's 18 months. Why does an 18-month-old have to sit for 10 minutes? Anyway. When a child, as a therapist, as an early interventionist, but as a therapist, there is no reason a child should cry in a therapy set. So that's one, number one, number one. And then the pushback would be, well, you know, we have to, and sometimes I'm not saying you're not going to challenge children to teach them new things, but little children should be doing things through fun activities. You need to meet them where they are. So if your child is not excited and, and joyful, in therapy, and if they're crying, that's flag, like flag, 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 flag. That is not going to be a really good situation. And I believe, and I tell this to therapists all the time, it is the therapist's job to figure out how to connect with that child and find out what their interest is. It's not the child's responsibility to bow down to what you think is fun. Everybody doesn't like bubbles. Everybody doesn't like Play-Doh, right? Everybody doesn't like stickers. So you have to sort of make adjustments. Another sign um, for what you should, you know, 
be cautious of is if you're not getting communication from the therapist, if they're not allowing you to observe the session, sometimes it is best when kids are not necessarily in the same room as mom. You know, we get different sort of connection with the kiddo. But I always ask, tell parents, if you can tell the therapist, listen, um, go ahead and do the session. If I can come in the last five, if there's not a two-way glass, they used to do two-way glass mirrors, but they don't do that anymore in a lot of places. But I used to say, ask them if you can come in the last, you know, like seven, five minutes to observe the strategies because you can do them at home. You, it's not 30 minutes twice a week you're going to make all this progress. Parents need to be equipped. And, of course, everybody knows that's where I'm coming from. That's what I do for a living, and I've always felt that way. So if you're not allowed to participate, observe the therapy, flag, flag, flag. Right. Um, what you look for is someone who is asking you questions about your child, not just telling you about your child based on a piece of paper. You look for someone who asks you what your child's interests are. You look for someone who um, communicates to you um, why they're doing something and then gives you suggestions on what you can do when they're not there. That's my top no, Top I, 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 I think that's why I asked the question. That's important because a lot of mm-hmm. parents don't always know. Um, yes. You told a little story, so I want to tell a little story. And Yay! this does relate relate to what, what we were talking about. So my first job working with kids was as a summer camp counselor, which a lot of people have. Our camp was sort of a mixture of sleepaway and day camp. We had an area outside of New York City, which is like a wooded area where we had a camp where we'd get bused to for about an hour back and forth every day. And most of us were in our, our young 20s and the 20s in that ballpark. A lot of us didn't have, have experience working with kids beforehand. I didn't. I was still in college to, as, as a journalism major. So let me tell you some of the things these counselors would get up to. Um, almost everyone showed up stoned. They go off in the woods and get high. Everyone was hooking up with everybody else. We had, like I said, we had school buses where we went back and forth. And all, the counter was supposed to be distributed throughout the school bus. But we'd all go to the back and do various things like get high, make out with other counselors, etc., 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 sell drugs, things like that. Um, one time, one of my friends who was a counselor saw a kid being attacked by a bee, looked dead at him, looked did at him and kept walking. I say all this to tell, I lost track of kids. Like, yeah. for example, my hands aren't clean. I was involved in all of the above and I even lost track of kids. I say that I wasn't the only one that lost track of kids either. I say all this to say we all had about the same amount of training as your average ABA technician. So your average ABA technician has about the same amount of training, the same amount of experience working with kids, and the same academic level, and is probably around the same age, as me and the other jackasses working at that camp. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah RBTs get 40 hours. Yeah, that's, a, that's how much training we got. We got, we, we got 40 hours of training. And you, you saw how well that went. So yeah. just, just remember, that, that's who might be working, that's who probably is working with your kids. I think also, um, now that I think about it, uh, based on the fact that things have changed, a lot of the early interventionists that are available in the zero to three that they come to your home, um, a lot of them are not therapists, right? They are folks that are, you know, early childhood development. They're not necessarily therapists and a lot of them have no clue about 
anything related to autism. And so I, this is just me, I think it's always important. I love it when I meet a family, when I walk into a home for the first time and they ask me what my experience is and my viewpoint on autism because it's important to know and have someone working with your kiddo that is aligned, you know, in, in regards to even crying it out, right? Like if you don't believe in your kids crying it out, then you need to advocate and say, I'm not going to allow that, right? And yes, I understand that people are professionals, but I also, as I told my mom last week, not my mom, but a mom, um, client of mine, I said, you, she kept saying that she knew her gut kept telling her, gut kept telling her, gut kept telling her, but she felt like the professional and maybe I don't know because I'm the mom. And I said, you are your child's expert. You just don't sometimes always have the words to be able to explain it, right? You know your child needs to jump on the bed. You just don't know why they need to jump on the bed and what you can do if the bed is an issue and you need a trampoline. So, um, you know, parents, especially, and I'm not downing dads. I'm not saying that dads don't know, but mommies, you know, you know your kiddos and a therapist should listen to you if you have something to say. Um, there's, it doesn't matter who has a stamp and a degree and I'm not saying to disrespect therapist. I'm saying every parent has a right to ask questions to whomever is servicing their child, whether it's a teacher, a babysitter, a bus driver, I don't care who it is. You have a right to ask questions to somebody who has your child when you're not there. Exactly. And just cause someone's an expert, here's how I always see it. This might not be the best way to see it. Whenever someone says they're an expert or a doctor or have, or have the whole can of alphabet soup after their name. I don't necessarily let it. There's, there's a phrase called trust, but verify mm -hmm. trust, but verify because, because there, you could say, well, I'm not going to question them because I'm not a doctor. No, no, no. It's the other way around because you're not a doctor. They could lie to you and you don't know they're lying to you. They could be completely full of it. Their information could be 30 years out date and mm -hmm. you won't know because you're not a doctor. So don't yeah. ever say, because I can't question them because I'm not a doctor or I'm not a therapist. You should question everything, trust but verify. Don't 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 be a holes to therapists yeah. and doctors. Don't don't do that. But verify everything they're saying. And, and I get that can be a lot of work. But when it comes to your kids, it, it is a mm -hmm. lot of work. And you can't just trust whatever a therapist says. Ask questions. Yeah, your kiddos I, do your own you. research, but make sure it's good research. Don't just go on YouTube videos. I'm kind of afraid to say do your own research because in the States right now, <laughs> there's a lot of people doing their own research and they're all dying of the plague. So I'm a little afraid to say that, but yeah. do your own research. Yeah. Educate yourself, empower yourself and ask yeah, that, questions. That's better. Right? Ed educate and empower yourself. That, that That's better yes. than do your own research. I like that. Ask questions, ask questions. And Torin, now I have to share my last um, I'll share with parents what I did as a, as a mom, right? And this is not necessarily related to autism, but it's related to the responsibility of me being a parent and making sure that the people who are caring for my child are held accountable, be, right? Be, being a parent children. is universal, so. Yes. So when my children were born, you know, you have to pick a pediatrician before they're born. And then I think one of my kids needed a dermatologist or whatever they needed, so to choose the child, the doctors that were going to be working with my children, I made a list of questions of what I wanted in a doctor, and I made a list of things that I expected. I had 10 questions. 
I would call a pediatrician. I would ask the 10 questions. If one of the questions was not answered in a way that I wanted it to be answered, I did not choose that doctor. I chose a wonderful pediatrician that worked within the way I wanted to parent my kids. And it was a wonderful experience, right? So I, I say this because I've told this story before to parents and they're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that either. I just did it because I wanted to know this is what I want for my children. Whoever's going to be with them needs to want the same thing that I want because I'm not going to argue with my child's pediatrician. Like, that's just ridiculous. I'm the mom. Um, not down in pediatricians. I, I respect pediatricians, but, you know, I'm the mommy. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I say that to say you have every right as a parent to ask questions of anyone who is going to be caring for your children, and you certainly have a right to ask questions of a therapist. And so because I understand parents say, I don't know what questions to ask, that is why I do parent empowerment. That is why I think it's important for parents to understand and educate themselves because when you do get into that early intervention phase, you know, you're already processing a diagnosis. Everyone's telling you what to do. Family members are not supportive. You're not really sure what autism is. You have to make really quick decisions. You've got to fill out all this paperwork. It becomes overwhelming. And I often say, take the time to stop, educate yourself, empower yourself with knowledge so you know what questions you want to ask. And then you know what you want for your child and you can make those decisions um, with the information so that you can make those choices. And I only say that it's not about... I think every parent should make the decision I would make. It's not that I think every parent should do what I think they should do. It's that I think you should do what you want to do, right, wrong, or indifferent. It, like You get to make those decisions, but you have to know what questions to ask, and you don't know if you don't empower yourself. And, and that's where you know networking, parent coaching, talking to other parents, and, and sort of getting the information before you decide on the therapies. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of pressure. I know it's overwhelming. So that's what I wanted to just say for my final words around closing off the loop on early intervention in terms of, I think Taryn and I both agree it's important. I think it's important for it to be good, you know, specific to the child's individual needs. Um, and then part of the parent role is to empower yourself so you can ask those questions. What are your final thoughts, Taryn? Um, after that, I, I, I don't think I have anything. I pretty much said what I wanted to say. I just have one announcement real quick. We have... So... Shifting the narrative on everything autism now has a Twitter account. So what? Which we've had for a while. I just keep forgetting to plug it. So here you go. It's at shifting on. So at shifting on. Shifting and on are both capital. It's the every. It's we're listed as the Everything Autism Podcast because we have a really long name, so I couldn't fit the whole thing in the Twitter bio. Um, we're probably going to come up with a Facebook page. Soon, I don't know when, but but soon. Um, but yeah, check us out on Twitter, where there's a lot of discourse. We, I try to give little samples of like what we're recording, what's coming down the pipe. I'm going to start posting clips there. A lot of interaction with the autism community itself. I try to filter things out to make sure that the interaction and the opinions and stuff are sort of wholesome and healthy. Versus Good. some of the more nasty stuff you see, yeah. and also you get a bit, you get a bit of our humor in it too, because we try to make everything a little bit funny. So, yeah, check us out on Twitter. I love it. I'm excited. You ready to get out of here, Stacey? I'm ready, but not ready. All right. Until next time. Um, 
everybody out there, just continue to have discussions so that we can, um, as a community, just shift the narrative around everything autism. See ya. Hi, Torin.